0: Now let's uh, read God's word again in uh, Romans chapter 8 this time, the letter to the Romans and chapter 8. And we're going to read very well-known words and of course the danger sometimes with well-known words is that we are over familiar with them and we fail really to uh, think properly about them. So let's ask for God's help as we read these words and meditate upon some of them. In verse 31 then, Romans chapter 8 at verse 31, where the apostle is concluding the main doctrinal part of the letter. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities nor powers, nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth, Nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Again, may he bless the reading of his word. And uh, let's turn to consider the question in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Or even what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who or what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, friends, in the last uh, eight verses of this chapter, which we've just read there, 31 to 39, we have seven questions in all. And uh, the first question in verse 31 stands on its own What shall we say? these things. Of course the question is what does he mean by these things? The answer in a way is obvious enough. He just means the things that he has been writing about from the very beginning of the letter and in the letter he has been writing about the gospel of God. In the opening eight chapters of Romans you have the most complete exposition of the gospel of God and uh, by that he just means that although we were all dead in sin, as Jews and Gentiles, and condemned by the holy law of God, all of us, yet God has provided salvation out of that, and that salvation is in Christ Jesus through faith in Him. And that salvation is so comprehensive that it completely delivers us, soul and body, from death. It even delivers the earth itself from judgment. And that salvation glorifies us within God's family forever as sons of God. The highest expression of our salvation is our adoption. And having explained all that, he then closes here by asking what then shall we say to these things, in other words, how can we possibly declare the glory of these things and the wonder of them? Well, indeed. And then he follows that by another six questions. Four of these questions are subordinate in nature, but two of them are what we could call principal and important questions, and they are these. The first is, If God be for us, who can be against us? The question is almost rhetorical. If Christ died for us, and if he is living for us now to intercede on our behalf at God's right hand, he says, then who can be against us? What power can meaningfully be against us? Powers will be against us, but meaningfully, no. Uh, in other words, whatever is against us, so what? God is for us. But that leaves another question that's more important than we realize. After all, it's one thing to say that God is for us if we are in Christ, that if we believe, we are saved. But what if we somehow cease? to be in Christ. The man in Christ, yes, he is blessed. But will I always be in Christ? Now, I think it's easier for the armchair theologian to answer this than for the Christian in the battleground. Once we come to know our own heart, once we come to know the power of sin, Once we see thousands fall around us who perhaps seem to follow as we did, once we become acquainted with Judas's and Demas's, then we really begin to answer, Can something separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, O Lord? Will something, maybe not in the present, but can something in the future separate me from the love of God, In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now you'll notice that the apostle answers this question by looking at certain things in particular. Things which, on the face of it, have a kind of power to separate us from God. And he considers them. And then he shows us a real relationship to these things. In other words, far from separating us from God or far from defeating us in the Christian life, these things are actually things that somehow mysteriously help our Christian life. And in a mysterious sense too, we comprehensively defeat them and in defeating them, we are enriched. Now that in some ways may seem a a complicated or a a very vague thought, but let's look at it a little more closely. I want to look at the things, first of all, that threaten our relationship with God. In a minute, we'll see what our real relationship to these things is, but let's begin with this, that these things seem to threaten our relationship with God. And uh, he speaks of them as things that we need to conquer, things that are our enemies, and he describes them In verse 35, if you look at that, he asks the question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he asks, shall tribulation do it? Shall distress do it? Persecution, perhaps? Famine or nakedness? Or peril? Or sword, the sword of death? Now, these things are all things that we consciously feel the power of. And as we'll see in a minute, we'll feel that there's something that threatens us in our relationship with God. Take first tribulation. The word means really pressure. It's used of crushing grapes. And it just means very pressing outward circumstances. I'm sure we all know them. Things that are squeezing us. And as well as tribulation, there is distress. And I think that word here refers to the inward stress and the sense of being hemmed in. The idea is there in the Greek word of being constricted by something and being in straits. So you have the pressure of outward circumstances and the sense of inward stress that accompanies them. Then there's persecution. And persecution is really a term for troubles that come your way uh, from other people just because you are a Christian because you profess the name of Christ Paul calls these things the afflictions of the gospel afflictions that come to you because you uh, profess the name of Christ he then mentions famine and nakedness now, these terms can be taken together uh, just to uh, speak of poverty of some kind, either poverty of food or poverty of clothes. Now, most of us don't know that. Most of us have never known that, or although perhaps our parents or grandparents did. But when real intense poverty comes in food or clothing, it somehow threatens you or carries a threat in terms of your relationship with God. And then he mentions peril, which means just being in danger of life. And finally, the sword, which means death itself. Now, all these things seem to carry a threat somehow to our relationship to God and to the love of God. Now, what is our relationship to all these things? Well, the relationship is threefold. First of all, the Apostle says we are all in these things. Verse 37 In all these things we are more than conquerors. So we're in them. We're in trouble. We're in distress. We're in persecution. We are in famine or nakedness, peril or sword. To some extent, we are in them all, perhaps at various times, to various degrees. So we are surrounded by these things and they are in themselves enemies to our faith. We're in them more or less constantly. I know that some of these things are common to everyone. I mean, who doesn't have trouble? Who doesn't have distress? But some are also there just because we are Christians. Like I mentioned, persecution and sword. And there's also the fact there's a quality in these. There's a quality in all these troubles that makes them harder for the Christian than for anybody else as we'll see in a minute. Now, Paul doesn't speak of these things as somebody who's just um, speaking in the abstract or theorizing. He's somebody who knew trouble and distress and persecution and nakedness and famine and so on to a degree that none of us really do. And he describes that when he's writing to the Corinthians in his second letter. He says that in stripes, Well, he has been in stripes above measure, that's whipped. In prisons, frequently, he says. In deaths, in in deadly situations, he says, often. From the Jews, that's from the Jewish authorities, five times, he says, I received 40 stripes minus one. The Jews would only give 39, just in case they went over the number 40. Three times I was beaten with rods, which was a serious affliction. Once, he says, I was stoned. You'll remember that he was actually thought dead. Three times I was shipwrecked. On one occasion, he says, I was a whole night and a day in the depths of the sea. In journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, perils in the sea, perils among false brethren. In weariness, he says, and in toil, often sleepless, hungry, thirsty, often fasting, cold, naked. And he says, beside, besides that, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Now, if we are in troubles, well, Paul was in troubles. And he knew what it was to be in them. And sometimes it's a consolation to know that these things are in our brothers and sisters. The devil is an isolator. In lots of ways, he isolates. He isolates those he wishes to kill. And one way of isolating is to make you feel that your troubles are unique and no one has been troubled like you. Well, we are all in troubles. We are all in them. So we are in them. The second thing about our relationship to troubles is that we are often surprised by them. And that doesn't help when we're trying to fight them. And I think we're surprised by them in three ways. There's, first of all, a sense in which we're surprised by the very existence of troubles and distresses and persecutions. In other words, it's hard to shake off the idea that these things are just not meant to be in our cup. I've often mentioned this before in the in the pulpit, but I think when we become Christians, it's as though we haven't heard the things that were often told us in the pulpit about the Christian life being troublesome and difficult. We 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 somehow shut that out and we come with the expectation that being a Christian means that we're not distressed anymore, we don't have troubles anymore, that the path is Always smooth, and the path is going to be easy. And the devil uses that expectation; he uses it so that when troubles come, like the parable of the sore, we wither away, and die. But the fact is that God has never promised to keep us from troubles, um, and it's not his his intention to keep us from troubles. In fact. God has promised us trouble, and we like to talk about the promises of God. Well, here's a promise that we need to consider. In this world, Christ says, you shall have tribulation. That's it. I know there's another part of the text. I'll come to it later. But in this world, you shall have tribulation. Don't be surprised that it comes. And especially tribulation that begins in a special way when you start to follow the Lord. Paul reminds Timothy of that. I think he was quite surprised at the intensity of the difficulty that he had, not just as a Christian, but as a a minister of the Word of God. Paul reminds him that he must be a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel. Now, these afflictions there are just that afflictions of the gospel. They are special afflictions that come. Just for the gospel's sake. So don't be surprised by these things. Don't be surprised by their existence. And uh, you must be in them. But as well as being not surprised by their existence, you must make sure that you're not surprised by the severity of them. Uh, that's a fact too. They we're surprised because the troubles are more severe than we would think they would be. In other words, this is subtly different. It's as though you said to yourself, well, I know when I become a Christian that I will have troubles. But you don't really expect them to be that severe. Even though the Bible highlights for you just how severe they can be. Who can forget God's servant Job? Some time ago we considered his experience in detail. As George Herbert said, speaking of Christ, was ever grief like mine i'm sure job could have said that and in some respects that was true leaving the savior out whose grief was ever like his but there are plenty others in the scripture too jacob's experience of tribulation and distress and persecution and so on was acute it really was acute he wept over lost sons over a broken family Joseph gone, Benjamin gone, all these things, he says, are against me. And he expected to go down to the grave mourning and weeping. And uh, it's interesting that Peter warns us, not just about trials, but against the fiery nature of these trials. And he warns us in this way. He says, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. It's not strange, that's his point. Not only will trials come, but some of them will be like fire. So don't be surprised if you are tried and that the trial is fiery. Um, we forget, friends, that we need these trials. I mean, we may wonder why they're there, but it's God's method of sanctification. And it's not just his chosen method of sanctification, it's a necessary method of sanctification. Things need to be burnt out of us. So we can't be surprised by the existence of these things and by the severity of them. We can also be surprised by the frequency of them. I mean, again, when you think of what Paul said, he said he was in stripes above measure. He was in prisons frequently and he was in deaths often. And so it is. You know yourself when you get over a trial, there's a tendency in you to think, well, that's probably the last one, or at least the last big one, or I I won't get anything as hard as that again. Uh, Unless the devil comes, of course, to tell you that something's going to come that will break you. We're told about Abraham just at the very end of his life that after these things, God did test Abraham. An interesting expression as though his previous life hadn't been a testing. When really, from the day that he came to faith, even though he was something of a a man getting on in years then, but from that very day, his whole life was a testing. And just when you thought he could lay his armor down, we read that after these things, God did test Abraham in advanced old age. And was that test that he got in advanced old age, was it not perhaps the most severe one of all? It was. So they just keep coming don't be surprised that these troubles and distresses exist don't be surprised by their severity and don't be surprised by the frequency of them but we are often overwhelmed by these things too we are in these things surprised by these things but often overwhelmed by them to the point where we feel but we're thinking. In other words, these things, the troubles and the distresses and the persecutions have a power to make us question the truth of God or his goodness. I'm sure you've noticed that uh, every assault in your faith is pretty much that. It's getting you to question whether God is either false or bad. It's always questioning his truth or his goodness. And you'll notice that this is where the angels and the principalities and the powers come in. I mean, in verse uh, 38, Paul says, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, nothing in death and nothing in life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers can separate us from God's love. But here's where they come in. Your enemies, your your spiritual enemies, they see the trial, they see your tribulation, they see your distress, and they come in and they make it worse. And they make it worse by adding their temptations, by adding their thoughts, and moving you, like I said, to make you doubt God's goodness, his truth. He did that even when, when we weren't in tribulation. If you think of Eve, when everything was for her and everything was fine. He still managed to manoeuvre himself into a situation where he made her doubt, that is the devil did, he made her doubt whether God was true or good. Has God said, you shall not eat of every tree in the garden? Did God say that? And did he say that? Is he actually really as good as you think he is? Is he keeping something from you? Is that exactly what he said? And if so, why has he said it? And how much more these temptations are inclined to work if we're sinners? Um, Job was afflicted, but perhaps the greatest affliction was the voice that was constantly in his ear saying, Curse God and die. Renounce God. Renounce your faith in God and die. The devil getting him to doubt God's goodness and God's truth. It wouldn't be difficult to doubt in a way when you're sitting in an ash heap, scratching yourself from top to bottom, itching in pain and suffering the loss of your whole family. If you are a child of God, why are these things so? Overwhelmed by them. And you're not just overwhelmed by things present, but by the thought of things to come. Paul mentions these things too. Things present and things to come. That's where what I mentioned a minute ago comes in. You you begin to think that, not so much that your trials might be over, but that you come to think, well, that was really difficult. What if the next one is harder still? That one nearly broke me. That one nearly, nearly came in between me and God. What, What if the next one does come between me and God? Severity of loneliness or the pain of rejection, maybe you've experienced something of rejection. What, what if all the Lord's people turn against you? What if disease that you've never really had in your life? What if it comes? What if it racks your body? If I've run with men on foot and they wearied me? How can I run against horses as Jeremiah says, or if in the land of peace they wearied me, what will I do in the swelling of the Jordan? I don't know if you've ever noticed. Uh, How interesting it is that Paul only mentions things present and things to come as things that can separate you from the love of Christ. Things present and things to come. Why doesn't he mention things in the past? Well, I think there's an obvious reason for that. The things in the past have not separated you from the love of God. You can see that. You can see even how everything's worked together for the good in the past. I'll come to that in a second, too. But you see, the devil wants you to forget the past. It's an interesting thing that there's a sense in which God wants you to forget the past, too, but it's very different from the sense in which the devil wants you to forget the past. The devil wants you to forget the good things. He wants you to forget what God has done for you. He wants you to to just move on, and he'll say to you, well, you can't can't make these things a problem. Well, as as always, he's got a half-truth there. But the fact of the matter is that there is nothing that God has done for you that isn't worthy of being recorded and recalled and giving God praise and thanks for it. It's part of heaven's duty and part of earth's duty to look back and give praise and thanks that you work these things out. And I'm here today in the love of God. I am here today still not separated from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus my Lord because you have worked all these things for the good. I come to that as I said. You are to remember, as Moses said, the way in which the Lord your God has led you these 40 years. Remember the way. But in the present we're overwhelmed by trouble and distress and perhaps overwhelmed by the fear of what they might be in the future. So you're in these troubles. You're surprised by these troubles. And you are overwhelmed by these troubles. And you are fearful that they will come in between you and God. But that doesn't sum up your relationship to these troubles. Not at all. The most important relationship you have to these troubles is that you conquer them. And that takes us really to the heart of our text. You conquer these troubles. He he asks, of course, in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Trouble, distress, persecution? No, he says, verse 37, in these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, I think there's more to this uh, than meets the eye. Paul is talking here, Uh, about a Roman conqueror. I think we can have no doubt about that. When he refers to a conqueror when he's writing to the Corinthians in his second letter, it is quite clearly a Roman conqueror that he has in view, coming home to Rome uh, with a welcoming procession and so on. And especially in this letter to the Romans, it's very fitting that he would speak of a Roman conqueror. They were used in the city to seeing these conquerors come home. Generals who distinguished themselves in campaigns. Now, these people were genuine celebrities. They were also celebrities in the sense that they earned their status. I mean, we may or may not agree with a particular conflict, but at least they earned their status. And uh, the city honored them. There was a public holiday declared for these conquerors. People would line the streets, and they would honor the conquerors. Now, the real question, I think, that's often overlooked is, what were they honoring the conqueror for? And that's an interesting question. Historians argue a lot in connection with the Roman Empire, what the real motive behind empire was. They didn't seem to glory in land. It wasn't the, I mean, extension of mere land was not all that important to them. It didn't even seem to be the glory of having an empire. That, that wasn't really what bothered them either. It certainly is what bothers many, but it didn't bother them. I think the real key, and I think most historians would agree with this, that the real key to their empire was slavery. Maybe we don't associate slavery with the Roman Empire, but, but we most certainly should. The life that they enjoyed, a life of bread and circuses and luxury and pleasure, had to be built on somebody's back. And that's where the importance of captives came in. And the general's glory wasn't so much in who he killed or how many he killed. That was of no use to the citizens of Rome. What was really significant was who he took captive, who he took back. The number of people that would now become slaves and the wealth that they had. And that's why the victory parade was more glorious depending on the number of the captives and on the glory of the captives. Now all that's got spiritual relevance for ourselves here too. When we fight the Christian fight, we fight uh, different enemies with very different objectives in view. Now we were thinking recently about the Christian armor, just a couple of weeks ago, and the importance of putting on the armor of God and fighting the good fight. The first enemy that we have is sin, and our command in connection with sin, as soldiers, is simply to kill it. That's the term that the apostle uses: is mortify your members that are upon the earth, put to death he says, mortify. Uh, like the word mortuary, anything with m-o-r-t in it has to do with death. Believe it or not, even the word mortgage means a death grip, which I'm sure maybe you feel if you have a heavy mortgage. But anything with the word mort in it is death. Kill it, kill sin, put it to death. And in connection with your conflict with sin, the instructions uh, given to the angel in Ezekiel chapter nine are relevant. Don't let your eyes spare. And have no pity. The the warfare that you have against sin must be remorseless and relentless. And you have to not let your eyes spare or have any pity. Many of us make covenants with sin and just try and take them captive and keep them under control. You can't. You can't. It's a war of extermination. So the command in connection with the enemy of sin is simply to kill. But here Paul brings before us a second kind of enemy. Sin this time, it's not sin, but trouble. Distress and persecution. Poverty of food or clothes or peril and danger and sword. The hostility of sinners against yourself. Not sin, but the anger of sinners against yourself. The rejection of Christians. The Christians themselves are not your enemy, but the rejection that they show towards you is an enemy. All the troubles of death and life. And here the command is not to kill. You can't kill most of these anyway. You can't kill troubles. And certainly it's unlawful to kill Christians, even when they are in enmity against you. But the command is to take them captive, these things. Are you in trouble? Take it captive. Are you in distress? Take it captive. Are you in persecution? Take it captive. How? Well, through the love of God. Through the love of Christ. He says in verse verse 37 that in all these things, in all our troubles and so on, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Is that the father or the son? Well, it's both. I mean, in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, he says. At the end of verse 39, at the very end of the chapter, he says that nothing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If you're going to take your circumstances captive, if you're going to take your troubles captive and your distresses and even your persecutions and your rejections, if you're going to take them all captive, you're going to do so through the love of God. Paul said the love of God constrains us. The love of God keeps us objectively. We know that that's what keeps us. It's God's love. But on our side, it's our experience of God's love and our knowledge of God's love that helps us to keep ourselves. There's two sides to our keeping, isn't there? I mean, God keeps us through his love and we keep ourselves through our knowledge of his love and our experience of his love. And when we we really know and feel, and they're both important, when we know and feel the love of God for ourselves, then we are able to take all these things captive. You encounter a trial or a distress or a difficulty, well, Christ's love works in you And you take these things captive. Um, Take take tribulation. Take tribulation. Are you squeezed by external circumstances? Are you pressurized by them? Well, Paul says, in the same letter, actually, in chapter 5, tribulation works patience. Let the love of Christ make it work patience. Come close to Christ. Come prayerfully to Christ, and let the love of Christ, as it fills your heart, turn that tribulation into patience. And notice, when it does, it won't just be for your own benefit, it'll be for others' benefit. Um, Paul says this um, interesting thing to the Corinthians. Blessed, he says, be the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulations. Why, is it just for ourselves? No, that we might be able to comfort those who are troubled with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So you take your trouble through the love of Christ, you experience his comfort and that gives you perseverance or patience, you carry on. And then... You share that with another, the very same comfort with which you are comforted, and they persevere too. Now, that's what I mean, or that's what Paul means by taking trouble captive. You can't kill it, but you can take it home as a captive. Take persecution. What can possibly be good about that? Are you meant to kill your persecutor? No. But you can take your persecutor captive. In the first place, you can rejoice. And this is what the love of Christ does for you. When you take it to Christ, you can rejoice that you have been counted worthy to suffer for him. And what's more, when you take your persecution to Christ, you can begin to enjoy what Paul calls the fellowship of his suffering. That is a distinct pleasure and benefit that comes from knowing that you have suffered with Christ. Or as Peter says, and I think Peter puts it, um, if anything, even, even more starkly, to the extent, he says, that you partake of Christ's sufferings, you may be glad with exceeding joy when his glory is revealed. Let me Let me say that again. To the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, you may be glad with exceeding joy when his glory is revealed. I think to the extent there means that the more Uh, you partake of these sufferings, the greater your joy when his glory is revealed. Material luck? Uh, Famine and nakedness to some extent? Take it captive. How? Well, let the love of Christ turn that into contentment for you. Being content with such things as you have, that's the secret to true happiness, is it not? The assaults of the enemy? Well, you can't destroy Satan, can you? No, but you can take him captive yourself. We're told in the scripture that God gave Leviathan to be food for his people. And, uh, of course, Paul discovered that the thorn in the flesh which Satan had given him actually made him stronger. It only did so when he took it to the Lord and when he remembered the love of God. And that God was giving him this thorn ultimately. Yes, he said it was a messenger of Satan. But it was ultimately God who was giving him this thorn in the flesh to make him stronger. So that God's strength through him would be made perfect in his weakness. And the more captives you take, the more you can take providences and difficulties and trials that come your way from God. The more you can take them captive through the love of Christ into Christian service and praise and worship, the greater your glory when you arrive home. The, the greatest conqueror celebrated in Rome was the one who had the longest train of captives. So of course, there's a very secular and worldly reason for that. It meant that, that Rome could be propped up in her life of bread and circuses on the back of slaves. But sanctify the picture, sanctify the illustration. Take it onto higher ground, the greater your glory in heaven when you have brought everything captive and turned it to good through the love of Jesus Christ. After all, that's what he means in these famous words of verse 28. In this same chapter, if you just cast your eye up to them, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. All things work together for good. All things are not good. All things are not good, but all things work together for good. He makes them do that. It's interesting that unbelievers sometimes say that. They say, oh, well, it all works out, you know, and everything works out in the end. It doesn't. Not for you, it doesn't. We're specifically told that in the scriptures here. We're told that all things work together for good to those who love God. That's all. It works good for them. And uh, they work together for good in the sense that it's always in the mix. Uh, The mix of our circumstances. Now, it's often the mix that we think toxic. I mean, there are times in your Christian life you say, well, if only I had that just now and didn't have that. If I had this to contend with, but not that to contend with, I'd be okay. But I've got a mix. And far from feeling that it's God who's giving you this mix, you sometimes feel as though fates are conspiring against you or that the hand of the Lord himself has gone out against you. Which takes me back to Jacob, when he was about to lose Benjamin, having already lost Joseph um, a good 15 years before that. All these things are against me, he said. An exclamation, that is. All these things are against me, and he meant it. He meant it. Um, of course, he was absolutely wrong because it was exactly all these things that were for him. These things were all working together for the good. Benjamin's situation, Joseph's situation, the famine in Egypt, the state of his brothers, everything was working together for the good. Um, Joseph, of course, saw it later when he was looking back at the evil treatment he had got from his brothers. He said, you meant evil, but God meant good. You meant evil, but God meant good. And God used your evil for your good, and he used your evil for my good. And he says for everyone's good, because he says you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to save many people alive. Notice that the toxic mix, so-called, is actually something working together for the good of many. Beyond anything, you may think, you think everything God does in your life is just for you. It's not just for you. It's for others. And it's for your good, and it's for their good too. And you say, well, how could Jacob have been expected to see that? Well, only by faith, the way we're all expected to see it. You can't look round your toxic mix, so-called, and say, oh, I see how this is good. No, you don't. You have to believe it's good. You have to believe that God is true and faithful in it and that, above all, God is good and that he's doing good. Last of all, and just quickly, you'll notice that you're not just called, called a conqueror here in relation to your troubles and your distresses and your persecutions and everything you're not just called a conqueror because you take these things captive you're actually called a super conqueror an unexpected term here but i think paul just uses he just he just makes it up as he does with other words he puts the intensifier hooper above conqueror Hooper, hyper, hyper conqueror, or really we we would just translate it as a super conqueror. What that means surely is that only heaven itself when you come home, will reveal just how you have conquered these things. And uh, the good that has been done through these things in your life. You're not aware of it. Somebody comes to see you, and speaks to you for five minutes. And you've come through your mourning and your grief and your loneliness and your trial. And you've just said a few things. And the person who's come to see you has been enriched and strengthened. Their views of God enlarged. Their sense of God's goodness and faithfulness enlarged too. And they leave you rejoicing. And you think you've done nothing at all. Nothing at all. And that's why... It's not so much conquering in these things that really matters in the end of it. Well, one way it does. In all these things we are more than conquerors. But it's when the conqueror arrives home that the celebration takes place. And that the true nature of the conquest is seen. The amount of things you took captive because of the love of God working in your heart. You saw you believed and you trusted that God sent these things or God allowed these things when he did and where he did for your good and for the good of other people too. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I am persuaded, he says, that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth, by which he means the universe, nor any other created thing, shall be able to separate us from the love of the Creator, who is on your side, the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Because of that love, we are more than conquerors. Amen, and may the Lord bless our meditation on his own word.